This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next-generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rubin, and today we're joined by Judge Lena Hidalgo, County Executive for Harris County in Texas, the third largest county in America. Judge Hidalgo, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Nathan. So I have a feeling that county judge isn't a title most Americans are familiar with, even though you do hold a very powerful position. Would you mind giving our listeners a quick overview of what it is that your job actually entails? Yes. So the title is county judge, but the position is not judicial in any way. In Texas, the county judge is the county executive. So essentially, I help manage the budget for Harris County. Harris County is home to Houston, um, 33 other cities besides Houston, about 5 million people. So it's a, a $5 billion, give or take, annual budget. And it covers anything from roads, bridges, infrastructure to flood control or libraries or justice system. And, and of course, I'm also the director of emergency management, which is why I've, I've taken the lead in, in managing the pandemic right now in our county. Excellent. And, and I want to dig into the emergency management piece of your job a little bit later. But first, I, I want to dig deeper into your background, both professionally and personally. Uh, you have a fascinating background. And even though you're still early in your career, you've achieved tremendous success already. So can you walk us through your personal background and how you got to where you are today? So I'm, a, I'm an immigrant. I was born in Colombia during the drug war, and we lived in Peru and in Mexico and eventually moved to the U.S. when I was, uh, I guess, about to turn 14. And I was just so impressed by the quality of the public schools I was, I was zoned to. I, I know, you know, not everybody has that, that, that luck, but I just didn't know that a public school could be so good. I'd grown up with my parents trying to make it work for them to be able to afford private school in South America. And then I came and I saw a school that had tennis courts and a film room. And we were you know, dissecting pigs in biology class. And I, I was just so impressed that government could do that. And so I began to wonder you know, why it is that that makes government useful in that way. How do, how do we, you know, how do, how do you, how do you actually achieve that? So I ended up going to Stanford for undergrad. I studied political science. And, uh, and, and part of my question was that is how do you hold government accountable? How do you create a government that delivers for the community? After graduating, I went to work in Southeast Asia on free expression. And it was working with activists, with artists, journalists, um, bloggers, you know, folks who were constantly under threat of being jailed or worse, who'd been in prison, um, who'd known folks that had that had gone to jail or had been killed 
for reporting on, um, you know, human rights violations and, and trying to hold government accountable. And so I decided that I was going to continue working on that sort of working outside the system to push for attention, to, to advocate for better policies. I started working on the criminal justice side of things, healthcare access, went back to school to get a um, master's and a JD. And, and then the 2016 election happened. And that's when I figured, you know, if he can do it, so can I. <laughs> I think a lot of women had that thought. And I was just fed up with the challenges I'd been seeing in my community I knew that I could make a bigger change if I was inside government. And I decided to run for this position because I knew that it had the incredible potential for, for positive change in this huge community. And of course, fast forward, a lot of hard work, many, many people who voted and volunteered and participated for the first time in the political system. And now we're you know, a year and a half into my, te- my tenure as, as county judge. Excellent. And I know you fast forwarded from 2016 to today, but for our listeners, uh, in 2018, you ran and won an historic campaign. You became uh, the first woman and first Latina to be elected county judge. You attracted national attention. You built a diverse coalition of activists and volunteers, and, and you did this all as a 27-year-old. Um, what was that campaign like for you? And, and what was your message that inspired so many to believe in your vision? You know, it was an exciting year for many people. I think, um, you know, the first year after the election, the 2016 election, I remember as one of the one of the thousands and thousands of people who participated in the Women's March. I just I remember that. And then the next year I participated as a candidate. And then, um, you know, and then the next year, of course, we were in office. And so it's just I think that that kind of tracks the trajectory of so many folks who are ready for change, ready to step up. So I can't take credit for all of it. I think so many people just found what worked for them in terms of having an impact in in our political system. Beto O'Rourke was on the ballot. That was very exciting. For our part, it was sort of inviting people to dare dream of a county government that could really make a difference. In the past, and, and when I was you know, starting the campaign, there were so many conversations where people tried to tell me, you know, why are you talking about criminal justice reform? Why are you talking about early childhood education? Why are you talking about transportation? You know, these issues just don't concern the role of the county judge. All they do is is you know look at, at at infrastructure, but but equity and environment and these bigger issues are are just are just not within the purview. And what I you know recognized early on is if you have this massive budget, uh, the budget ultimately reflects values, it reflects priorities, and it sets policy. And and so to be able to explain that to people, to say, look, it's not right when the largest mental health facility in the state of Texas is the Harris County Jail. It's not right when our juvenile detention facilities are filled with black and brown kids and you're hard pressed to find a kid that's not of color. And we all know that those kids are not any uh, less well behaved than white kids. And and, you know, we've had at that point, you know, when the campaign started, we had two 500-year floods in a row. Harvey hadn't happened yet, but it was, you know, nobody seemed to be doing anything about it in government anyway. And so it was kind of 
um, daring to have to, to broach those topics. And now that we're in office, I've found that that, yeah, I mean, folks are, are completely open to talking about climate change. It's necessary. And we have to figure out how to diversify our, our, our energy uh, you know, capabilities here in the Houston area if we want to be resilient. And we have to recognize, and people do recognize, that we flood all the time, partly because of climate change. So let's include that in our calculations and let's work on a public transportation system and you know, all of that. But look, I had, had great support um, organizations that were helping, you know, teach teach me how to fundraise, how to walk into a room of, you know, elected officials. Like, what do you what do you even say? Right. So all of that. Um, and, and it was just this wonderful wave of, of women in particularly running. And when I started showing up to candidate meetings and all of that, I, you know, I looked around and I realized there was dozens of us, uh, especially folks that were running for, for the actual bench, you know, for judicial positions. Um, we were the county that elected 19 African-American women judges. And so to be part of that sort of class of, of people running is, was just beautiful. And now we're all working so hard to, to make it count. That, that sounds amazing. And, and I had the, the great fortune of actually hearing you speak um, at an arena summit in Phoenix. Um, I think it was back in December of 2017. And for our listeners who aren't familiar, uh, the arena is a group that does a lot of these trainings, both for candidates and staffers and political activists and movement leaders. So uh, please be sure to check out arena if you're interested in learning more about how to do those types of things. And it sounds like you running as a first-time candidate, those types of organizations were really beneficial to you early on. Is that correct? Yeah. And there's one thing, you know, now that you, I'm remembering sort of what were the challenges and the hardest thing was not, you know, people trying to, to, to sort of bring me down and get me to run for something smaller or tell me that I was wrong and how I was conceptualizing the position. The hardest part was not trying to figure out a platform or trying to learn about, you know, the policies or, you know, even fundraising, you know, as, as difficult as it is, you just kind of figure it out. But but the hardest part was the lack of staff. A lot of people, um, you know, on on the, the Democratic side of the aisle, they kind of after after the, the loss in 2016, they'd just been through too many hard hits and, and they were just done, you know. And then at the same time, you have this whole new wave of of, of folks that that are newly involved in politics and want to run. And so supply and demand just weren't matching up. And so that's where the arena and these organizations really stepped in to say, you know, so, so the arena helped me a lot, run for something helped me a lot. And it was basically, um, you know, for the longest time, I couldn't find a campaign manager. There just weren't any, you know, with all these people running and such few people who had the experience of running campaigns. And so it was that guidance of uh, how to do it. And, and I think that's really important if we want to continue having new candidates, folks that are in it for the right reasons that are, you know, that, are, that, that, their heart's in the right place. They have the right experience, but they've never run for office before. They don't come from a political family. It's just, it's not the kind of thing that, that you, you just figure out on your own. And so that's why those kinds of organizations are really, really, really important and were really, really important to me. Absolutely. And uh, we're well connected and well, and familiar with groups like Run for Something and Swing Left and the Arena and uh, Blue Future and all the other groups that are, are doing tremendous work. 
What's up, everybody? We're going to take a quick break from the podcast and let you know that Millennial Politics is now on Spotify, Stitcher, the Google App Store, and iTunes, basically anywhere you get your podcast. If you like the show and like hearing from previous guests, such as Mayor Pete Buttigieg, former presidential candidate Andrew Yang, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and Ayanna Presley, and many more, make sure you subscribe, give us five stars, and leave a review. High ratings and good reviews are some of the best ways people can find us. And if you want to see us continue doing this work, we hope you'll consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. I want to transition now and talk about the current situation in Harris County. Uh, Like I mentioned at the top, Harris County is the third largest county in the United States. I believe it's behind only to LA, Los Angeles, and Cook County in Illinois. So recently, I imagine your plate has just been full of of COVID response, and that's been the top priority for you. Can you talk a little bit about your leadership and the actions that you took early on um, to help contain it? And now, as we're seeing a spread and a spike in Texas, what are you doing now uh, to try to contain it here and in, in, in today? So we started seeing uh, cases in March was when community spread, you know, finally appeared. But we knew it was there. I mean, we saw it was happening in New York. We saw it was happening in Seattle. Um, We figured, you know, it's more likely than not that we have cases that we're not being able to identify because testing is just hasn't caught up in this country. Eventually, when we finally picked up on it, um, we knew we had to act faster than other communities had. Otherwise, we were going to end up in the same position. And we had no excuse because we'd seen their experience. And so early on, uh, issued an order to close bars and restaurants. Very early on, we, we instituted a stay home order and, and folks were great. You know, the community really came together. You have to remember, this is the community that went through Hurricane Harvey and in the year and a half I've been here, dealt with two massive floods, three major chemical fires now this. And so we, we, we know how to do it. We're like, let's, you know, let's get through this. And we flattened the curve. Um, unfortunately, the state then reopened the, you know, everything. And in that decision, took away my authority to then issue orders, you know, stay home order, restaurant order, mask order, any of that. And so I felt at the time, you know, I, cautiously hopeful was sort of the, the, the term I would use about, you know, the, the state's reopening is, you know, I, I don't, I'm afraid it's too quick. I don't, I don't think it's going to work, but let's hope it works. And I'm going to try and do everything in my power to make it work. And, and as it turns out, it didn't work. Uh, you know, we've now learned that the communities that opened later, you know, that they, they stayed shut until their hospitalizations came down to 10, 20 percent of, of, of peak. And that opened fewer things at each stage are the communities that are, are, are and, and that still have some level of, you know, a new normal. They, they never decided, well, okay, we're, we're back to being 100 percent restaurants. Everybody go to the bar, everybody go to the water park, you know, recognize until we have a cure, until we have a vaccine. You, you can't go back to how things were because things are not how they were. They have, we have a virus that spreads through close contact. So those are the communities that are being able to sort of coexist with the virus. Us, on the other hand, for the last few weeks, we've been seeing um, hospitalizations rise since the end of May, so before Memorial Day, before protests and all of that. 
they've been rising and, and haven't come back down since. Um, they were going very, very quick. Uh, they were accelerating the past few days. They've slowed down a little bit. That increase has slowed down, but it's still happening and it's, it's shifting. You know, one day it increases, one day it increases less. And um, so, you know, it's very, very concerning. We've crossed into the surge capacity in our hospitals and I've been advocating for another stay home order, not because I like the idea, not because I, I don't recognize the extent of the economic pain. I mean, it's, it's horrible. And we've invested millions and millions of dollars in local funds to support with that in addition to the, to the federal funding we've gotten. But because I recognize that until we bring that curve down and until we really you know, open our eyes wide open, figure out what went wrong, what went right in other communities, we're not going to be able to coexist with the virus from a public health standpoint, but certainly not from an economic standpoint. I completely agree. And, uh, you know, one issue that's kind of become a lightning rod in the political discussion is the topic of school reopenings. You know, Donald Trump, the president, can tweet out, reopen the schools now, but school reopenings is a is very much a state and local issue. And there doesn't seem to be an, an easy solution. So I'm just curious, what are your current thoughts? How are you approaching something like this, whether or not to reopen schools or keep them virtual? Yeah, it's, it's, it's such a tough issue, you know, because these students not only are sort of not learning what they would be learning, but they're forgetting there's evidence, they've forgotten what they learned, and they're also, you know, missing the opportunity to develop vital social skills. And and so it's tough. But the thing is, this is not a, a completely intractable problem. You know, it's not a mystery what we need to do for schools to reopen safely. They have reopened, it looks like at least, safely in other countries, other communities. And and it's, it's it was, again, a sort of bringing down that curve and being very careful, taking precautions, required precautions, and watching, you know, opening a little bit. And you watch and see how it goes, okay? And you have ways to track. You know, we got to have testing that turns around results quickly. We've got to have adequate tracing and, and be able to, to, to see, okay, we reopened this school. We waited in the reasonable amount of time for the virus, you know, given the virus timeline and, and there's no impact. So, okay, let's reopen some more. So there's a way to do it. Right now, I can speak for Harris County, you know, when we're still having you know, 700, 1,000 cases a day, it's just not reasonable to reopen schools when the curve is so high. You have such a huge reservoir, a huge pool of cases in the community that are spreading the virus that at any point in time, you're right on the edge of a crisis. So uh, I'm hoping, you know, schools here in Sylvester open for a couple months. I'm, I'm hoping that folks will really buckle down in that time and do so. Right now, it's another of uh, one of those um, decisions that is coming straight from the state. And and as far as we've been advised, uh, you know, the county no longer has that 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 uh, jurisdiction over it. So I'm, I, that's kind of what I'm advocating is let's bring the curve down. Let's put ourselves in a position to to, to do it successfully and and sustainably. And I continue to ask for the authority to to enforce a stay home order for now so that we can get to that point where it will be responsible to slowly you know put our kids back in school and of course make sure the parents can fully work. I mean it's been hard on everybody. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think from what I have read and the data that I'm looking at, the, the most effective way to get back to normal is to flatten the curve and take the precautions now so that you don't have to reshut down later. So that, that all makes total sense to me. Judge Hidalgo, thank you so much for your time today. On a personal note, it was great to, to connect. And I have one last question for you. How can our listeners find you? How could they follow your work and, and stay connected? Folks can always check us out on social media. Um, my accounts are Lena Hidalgo TX. And so you can find us there and our work. You know, folks, uh, all eyes are on Texas these days, probably not for the not for the best reasons. But I do think that there is a lesson there for the entire country. And that is that there are no shortcuts for uh, this virus. It spreads the through close contact. Um, We can't wish it away. And I don't wish what's happening to us on any other community. So I hope it's a word of warning and I hope um, it helps other areas, you know, have an interaction with the virus that is realistic, that works for the long haul until we get through this. But look, we're really, we're really in this fight together. And, uh, and it's great to, to have this conversation. Thank you, Nathan. Of course, our pleasure. And to our listeners, thank you as always. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, or Stitcher. Follow us on social media at Melend Politics. Subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Melend Politics. And of course, stay tuned for our next episode. Thanks. Thanks.